Well, this morning we're going to conclude our series on the Good Shepherd from Psalm 23. We've already looked at the shepherd's solution for worry, his solution for waywardness, and his solace for the valleys. And today we're going to look at the shepherd's uh, confidence for the future. And I told some folks after the first service, I don't know who might need this today, but I know that I certainly did. You know, when we, when we talk about the future, think about the future, we often have mixed reactions. I mean, our thoughts can be filled with excitement and anticipation, or they can be filled with fear and dread. But how we see the future depends upon our perspective. And our perspective is shaped in large part by our past experiences, our present circumstances, and our presuppositions. If you've had positive experiences in the past, we find it much easier to view the the future with optimism. If we've had negative experiences in the past, uh, we tend to, to view the future pessimistically. Uh, but if we've, and, and you're really the same thing is true for, for the present. I mean, if things are going well for you right now, it's, it's much easier for you to project the present onto the future. But if things are not going well for you, then you have this tendency to think, well, the future is just going to be more of the same, maybe even worse. And in other words, we, 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 our past experiences, our, our present experiences become the predictors of our future. But, but there's another factor that affects our perspective on the future, and that's our presuppositions. Now, your presuppositions are the beliefs that you come to the table with. Uh, they're your foundational core beliefs that have already been established in your thinking. And they're so basic, they're so taken for granted that this is true that you don't even often recognize you have these presuppositions. The question becomes is, what do you fundamentally believe about the future? Do you believe that the future is determined by chance by random natural laws or, or by some evolutionary process, some impersonal thing? Or do you believe that there's some force such as fate or destiny or kismet or, or karma? You might even think you are the force. You make your, your future. Or do you believe that The future is determined by a personal, sovereign God, a creator. You see, it all comes down to a choice between a perspective derived from human experience or a perspective that is derived by your divine revelation. Now, think about human experience, chance, nature, evolution, Fate, kiss me, all those things, they come 
These are, these, are, these are sourced in human experience. These are things that people have come up with. But now, you look at uh, a creator God, a sovereign God, that comes by divine revelation. That which is human experience is impersonal, it's hopeless, it's, it's meaningless. It's impersonal. It, you have no control whatsoever. There's nothing you can do to affect it. And, it, so, and it's really, it's meaningless. But if, if the future is, is determined by a sovereign creator and revealed to us by divine revelation, then it's personal, it's hopeful, it's meaningful. Now, when you read Psalm 23, you get an optimistic, hopeful perspective concerning the future. That's one of the reasons that Psalm 23 is so beloved. And it's, it's divine revelation. But when you look at the experiences of life, when you listen to the news each day, uh, you, can, you can get a very, very easily, you can get a pessimistic view of the, of the future, a pessimistic perspective. And in this fallen, sin-cursed world, human experience tends to trump divine revelation. In other words, we go by what we see in the moment, and we determine it by what's happening right now. But notice carefully that Psalm 23 acknowledges all the difficulties that we face in life. Uh, Worry over the necessities, selfishness, broken relationships, conflict with enemies, uh, adversity, sickness, the fear of death. All of those things are present in Psalm 23. The difference in a Psalm 23 perspective is that all of those things are still present, but they are subject to the control of a sovereign and good God. While there are many things that we can fear in the future, all those things must pass through the filter of a sovereign creator God, the good shepherd. Because he's sovereign, even the bad things can be used by him for good. Now, what do you fear in the future? If I were to ask you to make a list of what you fear, you probably wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a difficulty listing three things. You would probably have more difficulty defining, deciding which one's going to be priority. Yeah? You know, when I was a kid, I had a lot of fears. I feared going to the outhouse in the dark. You know, kids today fear monsters in the closet. Now, if there's monsters in the closet, what's in the outhouse? You know, so don't judge me, right? You know, when I, when, I, when, I, when I was in grade school, we feared that the Russians were going to drop an atomic bomb on us. And if we weren't killed by the blast, then well, we, would be, we would be killed by the radiation, the fallout. And I still remember those yellow signs on the walls at school, you know, that telling you where the fallout shelters were. It was a kind of an ever reminder, constant reminder of a fearful future. And kids today may not fear that. But you know, kids today do fear 
that perhaps one of their troubled classmates might walk into their school one day armed like Rambo and begin to shoot everyone in sight like they're playing a video game. Many young people today are terrified that global warming or so-called man-made climate change is going to bring about uh, some kind of day after tomorrow end-of-the-world apocalypse. I mean, they literally believe that that's a possibility or are scared of that. And as adults, we have our own fears. I mean, what about terrorists getting their hands on weapons of mass destruction? That's pretty terrifying, isn't it? Of explosions in public places, such as ball games and, and concerts. Now listen, th- those may not be your fears, but as we look at the unknown future, all of us have a tendency to plug in our particular fears into the future. It is, as David concludes Psalm 23, he says, I can face the future with confidence, with hope, with meaning, because the Lord is my shepherd. And I want you to listen to what David says in Psalm 23 and verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's David's perspective on the future. And David had confidence to face the future because he understood the nature of the good shepherd. And that's true for us. We can have the confidence to face the future if we truly understand the nature of our good shepherd. You may notice some similarities between the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. In verse 1, David says, Because the Lord is my shepherd... I don't have to worry about the the temporal things in my life. God provides everything I need. I have no wants. In verse 6, he says, I'm not only trusting the good shepherd to provide everything I need in this world, but I'm confident that I face eternity with the good shepherd. I I don't worry. I have confidence. Now, where do you get that kind of confidence? Friends, you get it from divine revelation. You don't get it from past experiences. You don't get it from present circumstances. You get it from core beliefs that are founded in a revealed understanding of the true nature of God. It's it's understanding who God is and believing that in the depth of your being. It, It has to be foundational. And, and here David reveals two unassailable reasons why believers can face the future with confidence. First of all, he says you can face the future with confidence because God is working in you. God is working in you. And David says in the first part of that verse, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, goodness and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Goodness in the Old Testament is the, is, the, is the word we translate in the New Testament, grace. It's the same idea. Uh, another word in the Old Testament that we would translate grace is loving kindness. 
So goodness and loving kindness and grace are all synonymous. Grace means that God gives to you good that you do not deserve. The flip side of that is mercy. Mercy means that God withholds from you punishment you do deserve. And so aren't you glad that that God gives you good you don't deserve and withholds from you punishment that you do deserve? And we desperately need that. Because, see, in the future, we are going to sin. See, we're not just imperfect. We sin. We don't just stumble and fall. We rebel. We need God's goodness. We need God's grace because we never deserve it. We need both. And the reason that God can withhold punishment from you that you deserve is because Jesus has already paid the penalty for you on the cross. You remember that verse that we read a few weeks ago, Isaiah 53, 6, that says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God placed your sin on Jesus and he punished him. He gave him what you deserve, which is death. Everything you've ever done, past, present, even future, has already been laid on Jesus. And he's already paid the penalty. That's why God can withhold judgment from your life. You see, when you understand that God's not only being good to you, that he's giving you things you don't deserve, and that he's withholding from you all the things you do deserve, man, what is there to fear in the future? David says, God watches over every day of my life with his goodness and his mercy. Friends, think every single day of your life as a believer, God watches over you with goodness and mercy. See, I, I can expect that. Surely, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I can say that with absolute confidence. There's no question. There's no doubt. I know it for sure. I can expect goodness and mercy every single day of my life because my shepherd is the good shepherd. And you see, I know that he watches over me. Everything in my life gets filtered through the goodness and mercy of the good shepherd. See, you you can't know what the future holds, but you can know who holds the future. And and you can know that God is in control of everything and that God allows everything that comes into your life for your good. But listen, make sure you don't misunderstand what David is saying. When David says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, he is not saying only good things will happen to me. Do you get that? He's not saying nothing bad will ever happen, only good things are going to happen. No. You see, obviously David experienced difficulties in life. He faced adversity. He walked through valleys just like we all do. 
He's not saying only good things are going to happen, but he is saying that good always comes out of whatever happens in my life. Now, if we're honest, sometimes we have difficulty believing that. We would like to believe it, but our experiences in life don't always square with that proclamation. Psalm 23 and Romans 8 have a lot in common in that they are one of the, some of the most beloved passages in all the Bible. And yet, at the same time, they proclaim truths that many people, including some Christians, find difficult to believe. I want, I want you to look again at Romans 8.28. This is from the King James Version, the, the version that we know is most familiar to, to us. And it says in Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, many people have been comforted by that verse. I have been greatly comforted by that verse. But there are also people who hear that verse quoted and secretly they doubt it or question it or just outright deny it. They say, my experiences have not borne that out. They say, I can't say surely. I can't say I know that all things work together for good. I mean, sickness is not good. Murder is not good. Divorce is not good. Suicide is not good. The death of a child is not good. And you could go on and on with all the things that are not good. In addition, this verse is sometimes misused by well-meaning Christians who throw this in the face of people in the midst of suffering as if it's going to answer all the questions of life. And when, you, when that's done, it, it, it has the opposite effect of what Paul intended. But if you're going to understand this verse, you have to embrace four principles. This is, the first is this, you must start with God. You must start with God. I want you to look at two translations of Romans 8.28. First, let's look at the King James Version. Look at it one more time. And it says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now stop right there. Now let's look at the New American Standard translation. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Do you see the difference? The King James Version has God all the way at the end of the verse. The New American Standard has God at the beginning of the verse. And, it, and this is partly a question of text, a partly a, a question of grammar. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the traditional emphasis, but this modern translation brings out the proper emphasis. We will never properly understand Romans 8.28 if we have God at the end of the verse rather than at the beginning. And I say that because, you see, many people look at life that way. Uh, they, they see life as a roll of the dice. Things 
happen. Things is the subject. Things happen. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And then after a tragedy, God shows up like a parent picking up their child and and kissing their boo-boos and making everything better. But friend, that is not the biblical view at all. Uh, the, The truth is, God is there at the beginning. God is there at the end, and God is there on every step of the way. The truth is, God is at work in all things. Not luck, not chance, not things, not fate, but God. And that answers the big question. Where is God when it hurts? Well, Romans 8.28 says God is right there at the beginning and through it all. This is not a, a happy ever after verse that says that God will turn all your tragedies into blessing. Now, that's fine for fairy tales, but that's, that doesn't work for real life. I mean, what do you say when a, when a child dies? What do you say when an officer is, is killed by a drug dealer? What do you say when a, when a missionary dies on the field? Uh, what do you say when uh, uh, your, your spouse cheats, your marriage falls apart? How could you ever say any of those things are good? The Bible never asks us to pretend that tragedy isn't tragedy or that pain isn't real. God knows all of those things. The point is that we must see that God is actively involved in the midst of all of those things. Is Paul saying that whatever happens is good? No. Is Paul saying that suffering and evil could be good? No. Is he saying that if we have enough faith, everything will work out? No. Is he saying that we'll, we'll come to know and understand at some point while these things happen? No. No. What's he saying then? God is putting a huge sign over the unexplainable mysteries of life. God is at work in you. God is at work. How? I don't know. For, for what purpose? For good, not for evil. Do I understand it? No. You see, that's why we can face the future with confidence. Because though I can't explain it, though I don't see it all, the, tr- the reality is, is that there is a revealed truth that God is at work and he is at work for good in the midst of all those things. You know, we already said little children are afraid of the dark at night. And, and they're afraid because they can't see what's in the darkness. And they cry out, you know, and they cry out until daddy comes. And daddy comes and sits on the bed. And he puts his arm around them. And he says, it's okay, honey. Daddy's here. The fear goes away when daddy comes. And, and that's a lot like us in life. The future darkness, we can't see. We don't know what's happening, going to happen in the future. We can't see. We can't understand that. It, it makes us fearful. 
But we cry out and, and, and our Father, our Heavenly Father comes and He puts His arms around us and He says, I'm here, it's okay. It, nothing has changed. It's still dark. But it changes the dark when you know the Father is here. He is here and He is at work in our lives. And listen, we must have a long-term perspective. So many things in life are unexplainable. I mean, why does a tornado destroy a house and leave the one beside it untouched? Why does that tumor come back when the doctor said, you know, I thought we got it all? You You could make a list of questions, unexplainable questions that go on and on and on. Even so, the darkness of the future frightens us. And, and, and we just don't, we, don't, we don't know why all these things are happening. Seen in isolation, these things don't make any sense. We, we can't figure out. If there's a purpose to this tragedy, we can't see it. And here's the danger. The danger is, is that we judge the end by the beginning. That we, 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 that we judge the future by the present or by the past experiences. The danger is that we judge the things that we can't see by the things that we can see. When tragedy strikes, you know, see, if, we, if we don't see a purpose, well, we assume there isn't one. But the very opposite is true. We ought to judge the beginning by the end. We ought to judge the present by the promised future of Scripture. And here's where Romans 8.28 really helps us out. Because, you see, Paul says, and we know. That's Paul's surely. That, that's, that's Paul's confidence. And he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, the phrase work together is one word in the Greek. Soon they're gone. It's the word from which we get our English word synergy. And synergy is what happens when you put two or more elements together to form something new that could not be formed separate from one another. And, and, and it's, it's what happens when grandma goes into the kitchen to make a pot of soup. You know, she throws the onions in there and the potatoes and the celery and the carrots and the rutabagas and the turnips and the... All the seasonings and the spices and uh, the meat and the secret ingredients that nobody knows about. And then she applies heat. And it, and it simmers under that heat all day long. And what is the outcome? A delicious culinary delight. Now, listen, left, to my, left on my own, I'm probably not going to eat an onion like I would an apple. I'm not going to munch on a garlic clove all by itself. I don't really particularly care for rutabagas or turnips. That's what we fed the pigs when I was growing up. But you know what? When you take all those things and you put them in there and apply the heat and the time, something good comes out of that, something incredible. I wouldn't, individually, separately, it may not make sense. It may not seem like something good to me. But boy, when that soup comes out hot and ready, it's wonderful. 
And you see, that, that's really what Paul is saying. This is synergy. God causes all things, even the good things that are not good in and of themselves, God brings everything together in a way that it works out to become something that benefits us. Many of the things that we experience make no sense whatsoever. And if you isolate them, you can't, and that's the way we do it. We, why did this happen? See, it's always this particular thing. And, and we, we want to pull it out and we want to try to make sense of that thing, but you can't make sense of that thing alone. And, and we've got to look at life with a long-term perspective. We can't judge the end by the beginning. We need a long-term perspective. And listen, here, we must define good. Now, here's the real crux of the matter. Paul says all things work together for good. But what's the good that he's talking about here? For most of us, good equates to things like health and happiness and and, and right relationships, uh, long life, money, things, fun, the good life, right? That, that's what good sounds like to us. But, but that's not always the biblical perspective either. And, and in this case, we don't have to wonder what Paul means because he defines it for us very clearly in the next verse, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God predestined every believer to be conformed to the likeness, the image, the character of his own Son, Jesus Christ. God is at work in your life as a believer to make that happen, to make you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, anything that makes you more like Jesus is good. And anything that makes you less like Jesus Christ, well, that's, that's bad. And when Paul says that all things work together, he's not saying that the tragedies and the heartaches of life are always going to produce better circumstances in your life. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. See, God is not committed to making you happy. He's not committed to making you successful. He's committed to making you like his son, Jesus Christ. And whatever it takes to make you more like Jesus is good. Unfortunately, we tend to learn more in the darkness of the valley than we do in the light of the mountaintop. We tend to gain more from sickness sometimes than we do from health. Uh, We tend to pray more when we're scared than when we're confident. And everything that happens to you, the tragedies, the unexplained circumstances, even the stupid choices that you make, all of this is grist for the mill of God's purposes. Someone has written, I walked a mile with, with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but I was none the wiser for all that she had to say. Then I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but all oh, the lessons I learned when sorrow walked with me. God is at work in your life right now. You're a rough, uncut diamond, and God is chipping away at your life. And sometimes those chips hurt, 
that God is making you into the image, something beautiful and good. He's making you into the likeness of his son. See, the, the real problem we have with Romans eight twenty eight is that God's good and our good are not the same. Uh, our, our definition of good is happiness and fulfillment and peace and long life. Meanwhile, God has something totally different in mind. And you see, you and I, living in the present world, having our past experiences, we simply cannot even imagine the good, the incredible good that God has intended for us in us becoming like Christ. That is a good that goes way beyond our ability to appreciate. And and often, it doesn't feel like God is being good. It doesn't feel like God is being merciful. It's, It's often, sometimes, only when we look back from a long-term perspective that we see that God is working what he works. And sometimes we look back and we never know in this life what it was. But God's goodness and mercy will eventually overtake you. And one other principle here, we must understand the limitations. You see, the last part of verse 28, it says, it's a promise to those who love God who have been called according to his purpose. So that's, all, that's an all-important limitation. See, this is not a promise to everybody. This is a promise to Christians. This is a promise to people who love God. This is a promise to people who have responded to the call of God in their life to follow him. And if you're a believer... You can have absolute confidence that God is causing all things to work together for good. Not that all things are good, but things work together for good. God's purpose is to make his children like his son. And therefore, we can say this. Romans 8, 28 is an evangelistic verse. In its context, it's about salvation. Salvation is the greatest good we ever get. Salvation makes us like Jesus. Salvation secures our future. Salvation secures everything for us. And here's the question. Let me ask you this. Do you love God? Do you love God? You say, well, I, I, I don't know. Let me ask you this. Are you obeying him? The Bible says that he who loves me, if you love me, you will obey me. Are you following him? Are you doing what he says to do? Or are you living your life the way you want to live it and wanting God to reach over and bless your pathway? There's the difference. And see, we get upset. We get so upset. I've got my way. I've got my path. I want good. I want good, God. I want good. Give me good. And when God sees us going our own way, he steps in front of us, or he puts something in front of us to turn us away from that way, then we get, well, where's that good God? He's not good. No, 
He doesn't seem like he's good in the moment. He doesn't seem very merciful in the moment. But he is good because he's turning you from a way that is harmful to you. And he's, he's sending you a, a, another way. Have you, have you responded to the call in his life, in your life, to, to follow him? Called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? To make you like Jesus. Are you following? Are you yielding? I, I read I, or I heard uh, this week of, uh, uh, on the radio the letter of a man who wrote a, a radio ministry. He was thanking the ministry for a book that they had sent him on what it meant to be a Christian. And they were reading the letter and it was telling about the story. This was, man was kind of a, a, you know, a career criminal. He had been in prison so many times and he was finally kind of on this three strikes and you're out and he's been sentenced to this long term. Now he's going to be in prison for just a long time. And when he, when he finally realizes what's happening in his life, that he's, he's going to be in prison, it just devastates him and he's, he's, he's fighting, he's mad at God, he's mad at the world. And, and finally he's just so crushed that he, he receives a book from a fellow inmate about God. And he begins to read it. And reading that, he makes the decision to surrender his life to Christ. And he writes a letter to thank him. At the end of the letter, he says this. Going to prison is not good. But it's better to be in prison and to find Jesus than to be free on the outside and trapped by sin on the inside. Prison is not good. But being changed by Christ through those circumstances is bringing good out of that which is not good. That doesn't answer every question. This this doesn't answer every question. But you know what it does? It does tell us that God knows what he is doing. That we can trust him. That we can face the future with confidence when we know the good shepherd. Do you know the good shepherd? But that's not the only reason that we can face the future with confidence. There's another reason, a great reason. You can face the future with confidence because glory is waiting for you. God is working in you and glory is waiting for you. David says, I know that in this life, goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life. And I know that God is working good for me. And then when this life is accomplished, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that a great thing? To know, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, interestingly, David doesn't tell us anything more about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That's all. He just makes that statement. Fortunately, Jesus tells us some more about this. And when his disciples, his, his disciples were at a time of where they were really troubled about the future, Jesus has told them, I'm going to leave. I'm going away. And, and their, their, their future was uncertain, and they're, boy, they're, they're troubled. And Jesus says to them, in John chapter 14, in verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. 
You put that positive, be confident. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, he notice he didn't say, believe in your past experiences, believe in your present circumstances. No, what do you believe in? You believe in this divine revelation of truth. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Listen, I can face the future with confidence because heaven is waiting for me. I know that I'm going to live forever and ever in the presence of God. And the Apostle Paul talks about this a little more. I don't know if we have this on the screen, but it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now listen, your body is, is likened to a tent. It's a temporary structure, not designed to be permanent. And it's very fragile. It's very easily torn down. Our life on the earth, we're, we're like we're living in a tent. And he says, if, if the circumstances of life come against this tent and your earthly tent is torn down, listen, we have a confidence, we have a certainty, we know that we have a, a, a house, a permanent structure waiting for us in heaven. This is an incredible truth in the heavens. Uh, and, and listen to me. Your tent is going to be torn down. Nobody's going to live forever. You will die physically. And when you do, you are going to spend eternity somewhere. You're going to spend it somewhere because you are made to live forever. And you are either going to spend it in eternity, in the presence of God, in glory, or you're going to spend it for eternity in hell, separated from God forevermore. Those are the two options. Those are real places. And you see, this is why God is so diligently at work in our life, repeatedly coming and standing in front of us as we go our own way calling us to turn away from going away from him. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Christians, we, we long for this. That's what we were singing about this morning. We, we long for this. We want to be in heaven with God. For as much as having put it on, we will not be found naked. We're, we're not going to be just floating around in nowhere. God has a body made, reserved for us, in which we're going to live with him in glory, or a body which is going to be uh, eternally tormented. And verse 4 For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. That's that's life. That's called life. 
And now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. God's put his Spirit in us. We know that we have this eternal life. Why are Christians the most confident people in the world? Because we know that we have heaven waiting for us. In verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, not by past experiences, not by present circumstances, but by the truth revealed to us, faith in the truth of Scripture. And we are of good courage. Read that. We have confidence. And I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. We have heaven waiting for us. Death for the Christian is a transfer. It's a transfer from this temporal life, from this tent, into a glorious temple in heaven. Apart from all the difficulties and all the adversities and all the things that have come against us in this temporal life, and when we get there, guess what's going to happen? It says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I can face the future with confidence because glory is waiting for me. Let's go back to the first of the sermon. Let's go back to past experiences, present circumstances, presuppositions. Many Christians live by past experiences. Many Christians live their life based on present circumstances. Many Christians have never understood, people claiming to be Christians, have never understood that life is not about here and now. We've never understood that. And we make everything about right now. Even coming to church. Coming to church is for my good right now. If you give me something that helps me, then all right. If it's for good for now, I'm, I'm good and and we man but we are not made for here and now we are made for eternity we're just passing through this is the test this is the trial this is the preparation all that we're going through this is this is boot camp this this is learning this is getting ready we're we're ready we're going somewhere that's what we've got to see and as long as we've got our, our focus on now, here, then everything that God does is, is, is now focused, present for focused, and we just lose the whole picture of what God is really doing. It changes everything. Our, Paul says, our faith is based on what God has revealed, the truth of the future, a, a, a future we can't see. But it's true. What are your presuppositions? What do you think the world, what do you think is life is really all about? 
And what you really need is you need to go to heaven. Does everybody go to heaven? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus says most people don't go to heaven. Most people do not go to heaven. Few there are who find the way of life. And so, friend, there is nothing more important, no greater good in your life that could ever happen than for you to know how to go to heaven. You say, how do I go to heaven? It's when you believe who Jesus says that he is, that he is the Son of God, that he has left heaven, that he has come to the earth, lived a perfect life without sin, that he went to the cross, that he suffered in your place, took upon himself your sin, paid your penalty, overcame sin and death, rose from the dead and is alive, and now he is offering you eternal life. He's offering you to live with him in heaven, a place he has prepared. And you remember what the good shepherd said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So how do you know if you're going to heaven? Are you listening? Are you hearing? Do you hear the voice of God? And are you following? Because his sheep hear and they follow. Where are you? Is that you? If it's not, it can be. Do you hear his voice today? Do you want to follow? You can. And you simply do that. How? By faith. By faith. You believe the truth of the revelation. And in faith, you say, Jesus, I want you to give me your spirit. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to, be, I want to have the hope of the future. I want you to be my good shepherd. I want to trust you with everything in my life today. And I want to trust you with my future in eternity. That's what God is asking. Let's bow our heads close our eyes.